The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, and we are thrilled that you're here with us this morning. I want to welcome those men and women who are in the, in the overflow, and I know we got folks every week that are tuning in online, and we are genuinely thrilled that you're with us today. We are in week four of a series going through the Gospel of Mark. We, we started back in early September uh, working through this book. We spent three weeks in the first chapter of Mark. Today we're going to be in the second chapter of Mark. I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 12 verses today. We're calling this series, Son of God, Suffering Servant. And that title captures the unique, I don't know if the word is dichotomy or whatever you would say, the uniqueness that Jesus is the Son of God. He is also the suffering servant. And Mark's gospel, of all the other gospels, uniquely captures this portrait of Jesus. <clears throat> today we're going to read the first 12 verses you know, when we, when we first started this series, I had mentioned that the beginning part of Mark, this first three chapters or so, really you could say the first eight chapters, are sort of dedicated to, to helping us as the readers, as an audience, to understand who is Jesus. That's the question we ask as readers come into the text. Mark wrote this to answer that question, at least the first eight, eight chapters. Then we get into, like, who do you say that I am? And then we see Jesus as, as Messiah, suffering servant towards the end of Mark. But right here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, for anyone who has ever asked who is Jesus, this text gives us a rich glimpse into who Jesus Christ is. Would you read with me the first 12 verses? And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Verse 3. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Now, there's a lot happening in these short 12 verses, but what I want you to see, and we're going to unpack this as the sermon goes on, is I want us to focus in on the five characters or the five groups of people that are present here in this scene and kind of what they're doing. You can see up there on the board, we have the crowd, and they are hearing the gospel being preached by Jesus. He's preaching the word, it says in verse 2. We have the friends that have this healing faith as they bring their, their, their friend before Jesus. We have the paralytic who is hurting and hopeless. We have the scribes who have a hindering faith. They can't believe what Jesus is saying and doing, and they're getting in the way. And lastly, we have Jesus who is healing and forgiving. And all of this is an anatomy of an eternal healing. Jesus looks at the afflicted man. He recognizes that the external physical affliction was not this man's greatest need. 
his greatest need was forgiveness. And so he enacts an eternal healing in declaring this man forgiven. I'm looking forward to sharing with you today what the Lord has revealed as I've studied this passage. But first, would you come before the Lord with me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful that you give us this opportunity. I mean, God, we are, we are living lives, building careers, growing families, uh, vacationing, uh, doing yard work, uh, managing relationships, raising families. God, we are busy people with the things of life, and, and those are beautiful things that you've blessed us with. And God, here in the midst of a busy week, you've invited us in this day, at this moment, to gather in this place and to hear your very words as revealed through the Scriptures, the living word. That's incredible. And so God, as we gaze upon this scene in this room in Capernaum, as we gaze upon Jesus the Christ bringing healing and forgiveness to an afflicted man, God, would you help it not just be a story that entertains our mind, but God, be a truth that penetrates our heart. God, may we encounter you today by the preaching of your word. We invite you to meet us in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, or more like maybe 10 years ago, I was on a plane I was flying either to or from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I can't remember which, but I was sitting next to a gentleman who was an older guy, and he shared with me that he was a Jesuit priest who was actually on faculty at Marquette University. Cool dude. We started talking about, I told him I was a pastor. We just started talking, and and we were sharing kind of war stories, and he was telling with me, uh, he said his highest, most uh, prized experience as a priest was when early in his career he was was, uh, uh, pastoring a a parish on, on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Uh, the Lakota uh, Indians are, are on that, that reservation. And he said his proudest moment in all of ministry was being asked to speak at the funeral of a chief. And he said his proudest moment was grabbing the peace pipe and holding it up before all those who were gathered to say goodbye to their chief. And he said to the people gathered that day, as surely as this peace pipe will get you to heaven, my Jesus gets me to heaven. Or actually he said it in the inverse, as surely as my Jesus gets me to heaven, this peace pipe will get you to heaven. And I was perplexed by that. I mean, that's, we would call that pluralism, like that there are many ways to God, all paths lead to God. That's a popular kind of a worldly philosophy when it comes to religion, but it's just not the truth of the gospel. And I was perplexed that a Jesuit, an educated religious man would say that. And so I asked him, I'm like, okay. I said, can I ask you some questions? And he's like, yeah, sure. I said, you know, and, and you guys have probably heard this before. It's, it's the way of the master witnessing uh, uh, strategy. I just said, you know, have you ever Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever said something that wasn't true? Uh, Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? And I kind of go through these different commandments, and he admits, yeah, I've done that, yeah, I've done that, yeah, I've done that. So I'm like, not to offend you, I said, but you're a lying, cheating, stealing, blaspheming adulterer. And so am I. And so was everybody that day in that arena when you held up a peace pipe. Here's the problem. The peace pipe doesn't atone for sins. There is no forgiveness through a peace pipe. Only Jesus came in the flesh. Only Jesus is able to empathize with our human frailties. Only Jesus shed his blood for our sins. Only Jesus was fully God and fully man. Only Jesus bore the wrath for sin as our sinless substitute. And he looked at me, and, I, and I'm like, you gave people hope in a, in a peace pipe that can't, can't do that. There's no forgiveness in a peace pipe. There's only forgiveness in Jesus. And he said, you're a deep thinker for an evangelical. I said, no, I'm not. This is Christianity 101, you know? It's like, and we had a healthy debate. Um, 
And I just was perplexed by that. And I was thinking about, I mean, and our text today is all about forgiveness. It's about the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. And I was just thinking experientially about my, my coming to, uh, to faith in Christ. And, 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 and maybe you have a similar story. For those of you that, are, that have made a decision to make Christ the Lord of your life, you probably have an experience in your life where you recognized that the grace of God was for you. And in that moment, you realize that the condemnation of sin that was heavy upon your shoulders was lifted and placed upon Christ. And by the amazing grace of God, you were liberated. It's an amazing reality. You feel like you can, you can jump out of the gym. You feel like you can fly when you realize that my God loves me and he has forgiven me by his grace. Not because I've done anything to deserve it, but because Jesus alone can offer forgiveness. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing truth of the gospel. Have you tasted the amazing grace of God? Have you experienced that crushing weight of sin and death upon your shoulders when you realize that, this, that the wages of sin is death? But then the euphoric liberation of the grace of God lifting that condemnation off your shoulders and realizing that you have been declared righteous, not because you're good, but because our God is gracious and forgiving. It's the, it's the crux of the gospel. Jesus, in Jesus alone, can forgive sins. When we get into our text today, that's what we're being introduced to for the first time in Mark's gospel. We're seeing Jesus forgiving sins. We finished walking through chapter 1 last week, and, and we saw that Mark is kind of painting this portrait of Jesus as king and as lord and as savior, and we saw this frenzied activity of the early ministry of Jesus you know, first and foremost, John the Baptist prepares a way. Jesus comes and he's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon Christ. The Father speaks. We see the Trinity, the triune God present right at the baptism of Jesus. We see him being led out into the desert uh, by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the enemy. Where Jesus overcame the temptation of Satan, something Adam couldn't do in the original garden. Jesus accomplished in the wilderness on our behalf. Then we see Jesus going into ministry. He calls four disciples, fishermen, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He tells them, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then he preaches with authority in the synagogue and people are astonished. And then a demon-possessed man comes in and says, surely you are the Son of God. And Jesus casts the demon out and people are amazed that, that Jesus has authority both to teach and preach, but also over the demons. And then we see Jesus withdrawing to a quiet place to pray after he heals Simon's mother and, 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 and casts out many demons and heals many that, that night in Capernaum. And then out in the wilderness, he prays with the Father, and he goes off into Galilee, and he, he continues to do his, his uh, ministry, preaching the word. And then here, in chapter 2, we see Jesus coming back to the city. Chapter 1 ended, and it said that Jesus could no longer go into cities and towns because his fame was so great. But now we see him coming back to the city that it all began in. And I'm imagining these, these apostles who were able to be there with Jesus. And they were so excited that they got to be there with Jesus. In this hometown of theirs where people would look at them and recognize that, that they were with Jesus, this, this miracle worker. And as you look at this, this, this text today, we begin to see that there's this hostility that exists between Christ and these, uh, these religious authorities. And this is the first of five conflicts we see within the next chapter and a half, where the, the religious authorities are starting to come up against Jesus. And we begin to see the hatred that they have for Jesus. And then if you were to skip all the way to the end of Mark's gospel, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, we see five more conflicts before the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And so that's where we are. We see this eternal healing and that's why I've called my sermon The Eternal Healing. So let's gaze for a moment, if you will, at these five characters. Let's first look at the, the crowd. 
we see here in the story of an eternal healing, we see the crowd and they are hearing the gospel. We see this crowd that's present in this home, probably Peter's house, Simon Peter's house, and they're hearing the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 2. Many were gathered together so that there were no, there's no more room, not even at the door. And what was Jesus doing? He was preaching the word to them. So we see this gathered crowd hearing the gospel. Uh, how do we know that they were hearing the gospel? Well, because that's what Mark tells us in chapter 1 Jesus came to do. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And Jesus was preaching, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So here Jesus is from the desolate places back in Capernaum. And when he left, do you remember what was going on when he left Capernaum? It was like the miracle tour. People from all over had come, demon-possessed and sick, and there were hordes of people, and Jesus was casting out demons, and he was healing many. And then early in the morning, but when it was still dark, he, he tiptoed out through the house and went off to the desolate places and then left and never came back to Capernaum. But now he's coming back. You can imagine that the fame of Jesus had spread, and so as Jesus re-enters this town that he left in the midst of a miracle, uh, uh, a miracle work, uh, all these people are yet again gathered, and he's in this home. And he's, and he's again gathering people around him, but this time he's preaching the word. He's preaching the gospel. And as these people crowded around Jesus, they're, they're hearing the proclamation of the gospel. They're hearing that this time of God had come. They're hearing that the kingdom of God was at hand. They're hearing that the right response to the proclamation of this gospel was to repent and believe. And so the first thing we see in the anatomy of an eternal healing is we see a crowd hearing the gospel. Next, we're going to see in verses three, uh, 3 and 4, we're going to see two groups of people. We're going to see the friends, and we're going to see the paralytic. First, let's look at the friends. In, in the story of the eternal healing, we see friends that have a healing faith. We see these, these four friends that have a healing faith. Look at the language that's used here in these two verses. In verse 3, they, they came, these friends, bringing him, uh, bringing to Jesus a paralytic and we see four more times in verse 4, they, 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 they. And look at what these guys did on behalf of their friend. I mean, they're carrying him. What was that like to carry this man who couldn't walk? They wouldn't be turned away. They, they, they approached. There's hordes of people around the house. They, they weren't embarrassed. They weren't afraid of rebuke. The, the greatest, the chief ethic on their hearts was making sure their friend got the help that he needed. And so they pushed through, and there's no room in the house. So they walk around the side. They somehow, with a paralytic friend, with that dead weight, they somehow managed to get on top of the roof of this house. And then they make a decision to vandalize this home and to start punching and kicking and scraping and shoveling through this roof. And then somehow in the midst of that, they concoct a contraption with pulleys to tie to each end of this mat to lure this man down before Jesus. Think of the effort and the resolve that it took for these men to do this. How many people would have said, oh man, let's wait for the crowd to just dissipate. Like this is awkward, it's embarrassing. Our friend probably doesn't want to be a spectacle. Let's just wait. But they didn't. Their healing faith manifested in fierce advocacy on behalf of their friend. They had a resolve that would stop at nothing. They had the courage to face rebuke and embarrassment and condemnation. They had a willingness to incur financial costs as they tore through the roof of someone else's house. And I think sometimes when we hear the story of the, the paralytic before Jesus, I think we, we kind of automatically fast forward to the scene where Jesus is sitting in front of this man and, and a beam of light is shining through the hole in the roof, lighting up the scenario, and it's peaceful and beautiful, and Jesus speaks these, these powerful words of forgiveness and healing. 
But I was thinking this week, what about the seven and a half minutes that led to that moment? What about when Jesus is teaching and all of a sudden you see like through the window these guys climbing. They're handing up like what looks like a dead guy. And, he, and people are getting distracted. Then you hear a bumping on the roof and, 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 and dust is falling down on the people that are assembled in there. And like, what's going on? And everyone's there to hear Jesus, but these people are intruding. And, and what about when they started hearing the punching and the kicking and the shoveling and the ripping apart of the roof and big chunks of mud and sticks and dust are falling down? Seven and a half minutes of clawing and ripping. How long does it take to tear a hole in a roof the size of a human being? And I just see Jesus there with his hands folded, patiently waiting. And I can imagine everybody else is thinking, is he going to do anything about this? Like, these people are interrupting our session here. But Jesus just waits patiently, chunks of mud and stick scattered on the ground below his feet, dust on his shoulders. And then I hear once the, once the roof is open, they're shouting, hey, no, you're, you're, you're side down. No, my side down. Wait, he's going to fall. You're side down. Hold on, wait. And they're lowering it and they're lowering it. And pretty soon this guy on top of a bunch of dust and mud and sticks and a massive mess among, among a bunch of, of, of frustrated uh, attendees, this man is lowered before Jesus. And Jesus didn't rebuke. He just waited. I mean, these friends were willing to walk into and create a mess on behalf of their friend. As I look at this mess that they created that day on the floor in that house in Capernaum, it's just analogous to the mess that was their friend's life. Can you imagine what it's like to be paralytic in, in the first century? Can you imagine what it was like for their friend to not be able to walk? We don't have any examples of him speaking in this text. It's possibly might not even have been able to speak. What must, have, what must that have been like in the first century? No wheelchairs, no voice boxes. No oxygen tanks, no inflating beds that prevent you from getting bed sores, none of that. And this guy's life had to be torturous. But they fight on behalf of this guy. Now, they could have, they could have avoided the mess, right? They could, have, they could have just stopped in every six months and give him well wishes and then, and then went on with their life uninterrupted. But they did it. I mean, they, they could have sent the occasional card. They, they could have wrote the occasional check. And thus doing avoided the real mess of their friend's life, the trauma of his life, his real needs. They could have lived in such a way that they weren't impeded and their lifestyle wasn't impeded by the suffering of their friend, but that's not what they did. They had much love for their friend. And in this moment, on this day, they had faith that Jesus could do something about it. And that mess that they made that day at the feet of Jesus was just reflective of the mess that those men had been sitting in with their friend for God knows how long. They sat in the mess of their friend's pain. They shared in his suffering. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but when you see four men stopping at nothing to get their friend before Jesus, you get the feeling that they knew their friend's pain intimately. And they knew his suffering intimately. You get the sense that they shed tears with their friend. And when they saw an opportunity to bring him deliverance, healing, hope, they would stop at nothing because they knew the suffering of their friend. I tell you what, in this life, it is messy to share in the pain of another. It's much easier to write cards and send checks. It's much easier to, to, to share well wishes on a Facebook post. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but it's, it's possible for us to do those things and never sit in the ashes with those who sit in the ashes. Real friendship and real care sits in the ashes, shares in the suffering, shares in the tears of those who are afflicted, enters the mess of other people's lives without answers, but believing God has an answer. Real love and real friendship leads people to Jesus, the one person who can do something about it. This is the mark of friendship. And as I look at these four men, I see they had a great love for their friend. 
great empathy for his suffering. When I look at these four men, I see they had great faith in Jesus, great hope in the ability of Jesus to do something about their friends' suffering. Because Jesus and Jesus alone could do something. And we're reminded that Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins. And as you and I lift up our eyes, and as we look at the world around us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our community, it's very tempting for us to sidestep the messes of those around us. But I wonder, and I was just reflecting this this morning with, with a couple of the pastors, I just, wonder, I just wonder what it would look like if compelled by the Spirit of God bringing conviction in our life, if we had eyes to look up and see the suffering of those in our midst, the affliction of those in our, our midst, the unbelief in the lives of those in our midst, and rather than walk by with, it, with an easy salutation, what would it look like for us as well to enter into the pain and the suffering of those we love? So in this anatomy of an eternal healing, we see a crowd that is hearing the gospel. We see friends that have a healing faith. Thirdly, we see the paralytic, right? This paralytic, and he is hurting and hopeless. This is the third character. In this anatomy of an eternal healing, there is a paralytic who is hurting and hopeless. The last bit of verse 4 just paints this picture. He's on this bed, totally and utterly dependent on those around him. We, we don't know for sure exactly what afflicted this man. It's impossible to know when we look at the language, but we know for sure this man was unable to walk. And as we already speculated, what it must have been like for him in that day and at that time without the, the modern conveniences and developments that we have in modern medicine that make it life a little bit more tolerable and palpable for people with such affliction. I'm sure many of you in this room know what it's like. You've sat with, walked alongside, loved, and cared for people that were... That were uh, paralytic, whether through a spinal cord injury or just through an affliction that took people's ability to walk or move. I know I've been there. Right now, I have a nephew who just broke his back this summer, and we're watching as he's trying to figure out what life looks like being paralyzed from the chest down. And, but as I read this text, I was thinking of another nephew, my other nephew from my other sister. He passed away in 2017. His name is Alex. I'm not sure if we have a picture of Alex or not. This is my nephew, Alex. He was born with a neurological, muscular, uh, degenerative genetic disorder, similar to Lou Gehrig's disease, but it wasn't Lou Gehrig's. It was unique to him. And it slowly stripped his ability to walk and talk and, and play. He, he, he was born a little bit premature. He walked and talked as a toddler a little bit late, and then around the age of three or four, he began to stumble and fall. Pretty soon, he wasn't able to stand. By the time Alex was about 10, he was bedridden, and he could no longer speak. And so he lived about 12 years without the ability to speak or walk or talk. And, uh, but he well, cognitively was 100% there. His body was just wasting away. And I watched my nephew go through, you know, I was talking to my wife about this this week, and she's like, be really careful that you don't, like, his life was hell. I mean, it just really was. He had an awesome purpose. Like, God used Alex. He used his suffering for his glory. And I'm telling you, Alex, without sharing lots of details today, God, he was an amazing, amazing, amazing man. But he suffered like no one I've ever seen suffer before in my life. The last 10 years of his life, he couldn't speak at all, and so he, he only communicated with us by the movement of his eyes, by blinking and looking. And, and he laughed. The only time he made noises when he laughed or when he cried. He loved Jesus. I got to baptize Alex. So when he died, it was um, as sad as it was, it was very thankful that, that he was no longer afflicted with the body of death. But as I think about this paralytic, how hopeless and helpless it was for that man, I just think of my nephew desperately blinking, somehow trying to convey his hurt through the blinking of his eyes. It was horrible. It was just horrible. Utterly and, and completely dependent on those around him to care for his needs. And this paralytic had the outward physical manifestation of this hopelessness and this hurt. And what we're going to see when we get to Jesus is he looked at that and, and Jesus said, that's not your greatest affliction. 
Your greatest affliction is unforgiveness, which is incredible. Fourthly, we see in the story of eternal healing, we see a hindering faith of the scribes. We see these scribes seated in this room, and and they have a hindering faith. Look what it says in verse 5, or rather verse 6. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. They don't care what Jesus can do or can't do. They just, they're just, they just want to hinder what he's doing. And notice that they're sitting. Have you ever been in a standing room only situation, a concert or a house party? How selfish to sit. These men thought so highly of themselves that they sat in a seat of honor, crisscross applesauce, while everybody else gathered around. They were so self-important because they, they knew that to be a scribe in that era and in that time was to be a really big deal. I, I read this week that scribes you know, were very highly esteemed in the time of Jesus. Listen to what I read by one scholar. Scribes were admitted to a closed order of legal specialists only after they were deemed fully qualified and had been set apart by the laying on of hands. As guardians of his teaching office, they challenged Jesus concerning both his message and his refusal to admit to the oral law that they held to. Not scripture, but an oral law. And, and the scribes held to this oral law as if it was binding in its authority. And Jesus wasn't playing by their rules, and it drove him crazy. And you can imagine how offensive this scene would have been to these men who'd gone through this arduous process to achieve this place of religious status. And here's this carpenter from Nazareth in a fisherman's house in in Capernaum on the shores of Galilee. And he's saying and doing things with authority that they don't possess. They were the ones that were supposed to wield this authority. How could it be that an uneducated blue-collar man from the sticks could make the sorts of claims that Jesus was making? Jesus posed a threat to their monopoly on religious authority. And it made them furious. These educated, credentialed religious experts did not approve. Jesus was not one of them. He didn't have a religious pedigree. He didn't have any formal education. He had no scribal credentials, no religious degrees. I read this week that they sensed in Jesus' declaration of forgiveness an affront to the majesty and authority of God, which in their minds is the essence of blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy is death. It's not shocking that when you turn to the edge of Matthew's gospel, or the end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 14, as Jesus has been arrested, he's standing before the high priest. Mark 14, 63, the high priest. After Jesus makes claims of Messiahship, the high priest tears his garments, and he says, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So these these scribes are right in their assumption and their belief that forgiveness belongs to God alone. They just couldn't square the fact that the man in the room that day in Capernaum was God in the flesh. Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins. And so as we look at this anatomy of, of, a, of an eternal healing, we see these, these people, these four people, the crowds, the friends, the paralytic, the, the, the scribes, and then we see the main character. Lastly, we see Jesus. In this anatomy of, of an eternal healing, we see Jesus, and he is healing and he is forgiving. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I say to you, to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Even with these angry, hateful men who are mad that their religious authority is being challenged, Jesus doubles down. He speaks to both them and the paralytic, and he does what only he alone can do. He forgives sins. And it's interesting that when this man is laying there on a mat, unable to do anything for himself, I wonder what the friends were thinking when Jesus' first words weren't, get up and walk. But his first words were, your sins are forgiven. 
It's interesting the order in which that unfolds. It reveals the priority with which Jesus wanted to bring healing into this man's life. And as we look at this exchange, we, we see um, two new things that we have not yet seen in Mark's gospel. We're introduced to two new things right here in chapter 2 about Jesus that are super important. Up to this point, Jesus has not claimed the authority to forgive sin. This is the new thing that he's doing. He says, son, your sins are forgiven in verse 5. We've seen him do lots of things. You know, we've seen him be tempted. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him teach with authority. We've seen him heal a leper. But we have not seen Jesus cast out sins, but here he does. How can he forgive sins? Jesus says, who can forgive sins? Or the scribes say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's where the second new thing comes into play. We, we see the first new thing, which is Jesus forgiving sins. But the second new thing that our text introduces to us today is this title of Jesus that has massive significance. Look with me at verse 10. Jesus, after kind of rebuking the scribes, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he turns to the man and he forgives him. Underline, highlight, circle that phrase, Son of Man. That's a super important three-word phrase. Son of Man. I mean, this is the favorite title Jesus gives himself in the Gospels. I think in the first four books of the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man like 90 times, 16 times in Mark's Gospel. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, through the first chapter, we've seen Jesus called the Christ, which means king. He has been called the Son of God. Through the mouth of the prophet uh, Isaiah and, and John the Baptist, he's been called Lord. The demon called him the Holy One of God. But now Jesus is invoking a new title, Son of Man. And in so doing, he's revealing something new about who he is, and it's connected to his ability to forgive sins. This title, Son of Man, draws its uh, uh, illusion from, this title comes from an Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, the part of Daniel that is prophetic. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read to you what Daniel 7 says, beginning in verse 13, as Daniel has this vision. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is a prophetic vision that God gave Daniel, and he came to the ancient of days. That's, that phrase, ancient of days, means before days were. This is speaking of, of, of the Son of Man coming to God, the Son of Man being God, beginning in, in, towards the end of verse 13. It says, There came one like the Son of Man. He came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion. Hold on, I'm missing page 16. Talk amongst yourselves uh, about page 16. Uh, and page 16 would be... 16. Oh, there we go. I'm right there. All right, here we go again. Ah, Beginning in verse 14, the prophet Daniel. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this is about 600 years before Jesus. This is God giving Daniel a vision of Jesus when he would come. And, and he gives us this, this broad vision of Jesus. Uh, the Son of Man is one who comes on the clouds of heaven, which is a clear uh, uh, image of divine authority. So Jesus would come with divine authority. 
His, his the dominion would be everlasting. His kingdom would be uh, non-destructible. He would receive glory, and all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. And so when Jesus, and, and these scribes in this room would have known very well this prophecy in Daniel, so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the Son of Man, they'd have known exactly what he was saying. He was both God and man. And that's why Jesus is using this title to refer to himself. Jesus is saying that he is divine, he is Lord. His, commun- his, his dominion is everlasting as Christ the King. His kingdom will never be destroyed. He is worthy of all glory. And so as we, as we consider this title of Jesus, why, why? What does it mean and how is it connected to the fact that only Jesus Christ can offer forgiveness of sins? Well, by de- declaring himself to be the Son of Man, Jesus is making this very difficult claim about who he was, his essence, that it's hard for us to understand with our finite brains. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Jesus is declaring himself to be both God and man, the promised one of God, the holy one of God, who's no longer outside of creation but has now become part of creation. And why is this important? Well, the Heidelberg Confession puts it this way. Jesus must be a true righteous man. Why? Well, Jesus must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. Jesus must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. And so Jesus is the only one without sin who could actually pay for the sins of mankind. That's why he has to be a man. In other words, Jesus had to be a man so that he could identify with us but then suffering in our place and sympathizing with us in our weakness. I love how the author of Hebrews puts it. Think think about this. The author of Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why Jesus had to be a man. Why is it important that Jesus had to also be fully God? Fully man and fully God. Again, the Heidelberg Confession puts it this way. So that, by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness in life. In other words, words, Jesus had to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness in life. This positions Jesus both in this scene in Mark chapter 2 for that paralytic laying there whose greatest need was not his physical ailment but his unforgiveness— As you and I gather in here today, I don't know what needs you're facing. I don't know what things are ailing you or are causing angst in your spirit or throwing curveballs in your life or creating pain. It might be physical. It might be financial. It might be relational. It might be psychological. It might be emotional. I don't know what it is. But I'm here to tell you, your greatest need is the need for forgiveness. And God, in in his tremendous love for humankind, created this incredible scenario where he himself became flesh so that he could satisfy the justice of God. He could be the righteousness of God on our behalf so that when we come to him, we can experience that tremendous weight and burden of our sin that results in death being lifted off us. The the weight of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans tells us the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's amazing. As the God-man, Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins. And that's the the hope that, that rests before us today. This is the thing that we are meant to see as we look at this passage. These two new revelations about Jesus forever go together. 
And so Jesus looks at those men in that room. If you look at verse 9, he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. If Jesus did not, in fact, possess the ability to forgive sins, this would be cruel. It would be cruel. It would be a horrible thing to say to this man who has suffered so greatly. But Jesus proved to be exactly who he claimed to be. And the man rose immediately, we read in verse 12, picked up his bed and went. He went out before them all. The physical miracle of Jesus here verifies the moral victory. The scribes were speechless. The room was amazed. The paralytic was now healed and whole and forgiven. And we read, they were all amazed and they glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And that's everybody that was packed in that room that day. And some have looked at that and they've wondered to themselves, okay, how did Jesus grant forgiveness if this is before the cross? If it was at the cross where the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and he, he suffered the penalty our sin deserves and then through, through his shed blood and his death and resurrection overcame sin and death, how before the cross is Jesus granting forgiveness? And it's like all forgiveness in all of Scripture rests on the shed blood of Christ. Read in the, in the Psalms, Psalm 51, David asked and received forgiveness. The psalmist write about the forgiveness of God. In Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, this is before Jesus. With, with you there is forgiveness, God, that you may be feared. Psalm 86, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. The prophet Daniel said, the Lord our God, to him belongs mercy and forgiveness. I, I'm mindful of what the New Testament tells us about Abraham, that Abraham believed and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. All of the forgiveness of God is rooted in the atonement, the work of Jesus on the cross. And as I'm trying to imagine the scene, ultimately God might set me straight, but as I, as I imagine Jesus looking at this man who's afflicted and who needs forgiveness, he is Jesus, he is God in the flesh, and knowing the work of the cross, knowing the atoning work, the shedding of blood that was going to take place for the benefit of humankind, this is, is reached through time and it's deposited on this man as an imputation or a gift from God that makes this man righteous. Even in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, as the, the shedding of blood of, of goats and rams and bulls, all of that just pointed us to Jesus and the, the forgiveness that we have in and through him. Because Jesus and Jesus alone can forgive sins. So all that comes to this. If you would, imagine with me for just a second that room on that day, in that, that little house on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Look at that room. Imagine it with whatever imagination you can. And see those crowds just, just packed in there hearing the gospel. See those scribes sitting there with a hindering faith. See that paralytic on that mat hurting and hopeless. And look at those friends fighting on behalf of their friend with a healing faith. If you were there on that day 2,000 years ago, who would you be? Where would you find yourself? on that day, as Jesus was healing and forgiving in that fisherman's house. Maybe you'd be a part of the crowd, and I think that's okay. This crowd was patiently sitting under the proclamation of the gospel, investigating the claims of Christ, and I think that's okay. They were soaking in the gospel. They were soaking in this truth that God has not left mankind to, swarm, to squirm under the weight of sin and death, 
to a, to a world that, that looks at the suffering that unfolds every night on the evening news and, and declares to the heavens, where is God in all of this? The gospel says, well, God went to the cross and he suffered and died to pay the penalty for the sins that afflict the world. That's where he was. And he went to the tomb and he defeated sin and death and he rose to life again and he sits victoriously at the right hand of God today. That's where our God is in the midst of this world. And these people gathered in that house on that day sitting under the proclamation of the gospel were being reminded that their greatest sin was not their moral slip-ups or their little mistakes or their momentary failures. Their, their, their greatest sin was not their, their, their uh, sins, plural. The gospel reminds us that the greatest sin is unbelief. And we are born into a world where, where sin is a condition that afflicts all of us and only Jesus can offer forgiveness of sins. And so if that's you, if you're in our midst today and you have been investigating the claims of Christ, I'm telling you there is nothing more important on the planet for you to investigate than this. Nothing. There's nothing more important for you to patiently... The Bible speaks very highly of those who seek after truth. I would encourage you, if you're in the crowd, to make this a priority to meet with God on the pages of scriptures, to reach out to Christian friends, to come to church, to investigate these claims till you can arrive at an understanding of the truth of the gospel that you might receive that amazing, gracious gift of God that comes through Jesus. Then there's the scribes. These are the ones who are advocating against others. They have an active opposition to God and the ministry of God. And these scribes weren't sitting in their corner as Satanists thinking that they were working on behalf of God. But in a, in a, in a self-delusioned a sense of self-importance, of, of, of piety, of religion, they were actively working against God. As Pastor Jeremy said this week, their, their intent wasn't uh, to, to, to seek after transformation, but they were holding on to information about God. And it's interesting because we were meeting, looking at this text this week as pastors and, and as a staff, and, and as we're trying to understand how, the, how the, uh, the forgiveness of Christ works before the cross, we're wrestling with this, kind of doing mental gymnastics, theological gymnastics, and, we're, and Jeremy said, we're kind of doing what the scribes were doing. We're, 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 we're just overthinking this miracle of God. But sometimes I think ultimately... When it comes to the scribes in our midst, it's, 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 at the end of the day, it's about who is on the throne. If my abilities and my religion and my piety is on the throne, if it's about me, if my, if my coming to church and seeking after God is more about me and, and not about him, if Jesus is not the, the, the centerpiece, the focal point of my life, if he's not the head of my life, I might find myself in the place of scribe. I might be a religious zealot. Who has, who has no understanding of who Jesus really is. The centerpiece of our hope is not our ability to be pious. The center of our hope is Jesus and Jesus alone because only he can forgive sins. And, and then there's the paralytic, this hurting and hopeless man. His greatest need was spiritual. It wasn't physical. Someday those healed legs were going to wither, but that forgiveness was going to last. And filled with life and vitality, he bounced out of that house, washed with grace and forgiveness. A newly restored man. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this man, and he says this. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He said, I think I see him in thinking about this, this healed paralytic. I think I see him. He sets one foot down to, the, to God's glory. He plants another to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks, he shouts, he sings, he leaps to the glory of God. The Lord can do anything he wants. He can heal any disease he pleases, but the greatest miracle, the one that's eternal, is the forgiveness of sins. And I wonder, for those of us that are sitting in this room today, and I know the answer for many of you, has he ever said to you, your sins are forgiven? 
Have you ever felt that unbelievable, amazing truth that God, through his son Jesus, takes the weight of sin off our shoulders? He dies in our place. You may think your greatest need is relational and marital and financial and physical and emotional and psychological. Those needs are real, but your greatest need and the greatest miracle is that you and I can be forgiven. We can be liberated by amazing grace. There's so much great hope. Jesus alone can forgive sins. And then lastly, in that room that day, there were friends. Friends that had a healing faith. And my hope is that many of us find ourselves in this camp. Advocating on behalf of of others, especially those that were hurting and suffering. These friends didn't see their their buddy as a project. Uh, They genuinely loved him. They knew his suffering. They cared about him deeply. They'd earned the right to be in his life. They earned the right to grab him and drag him out of his house that he might find hope and healing. They entered into his pain. They sat in his ashes. They met him in his messiness. They shared in his suffering. And they brought him to the only one who could bring hope and healing. They brought him to Jesus. And no, they didn't have a full picture of who Jesus was yet. They knew enough to have faith that was commendable. And it was interesting that their faith is what compelled Jesus to speak forgiveness over the paralytic. Jesus says, if you look really careful in the language there, Jesus looks at the faith of the men and he says, because of your faith. And then he offers healing and forgiveness to this man. It was their faith that put this man in that place on that day that he might find a faith of his own. And that's why Jesus commends the friends. They had a healing faith. And they loved their friends so much they brought him to Jesus. Their faith was persistent and it was creative and it was sacrificial and they stopped at nothing. And as I think about who we are as a church, I think about who we are to be as followers of Jesus, that's to be us. If you're someone who's come to faith in Christ, we are to be these friends with this healing faith. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who know Jesus, but they're hurting. And our job is to sit with them in that and and bring them to Jesus that they might find healing and hope. I think about those in our community who don't know Jesus. I think about those in our community who who are suffering and hurting, and they think their greatest need is physical or financial or, or emotional, when really their greatest need is unbelief. The greatest need is forgiveness. And God has put us in a position to be able to to minister, to reach out, to love, to bring people to Jesus. Maybe not tearing holes in roofs and lowering them down on on mats, but in one way or another, God has put us in a position to be the voice, to be his mouthpiece to the world around us. I just wonder who those people are in your life. Who those people are in your world that need Jesus, that need the healing and the forgiveness that only he can give. God, may God break our heart for the things that break his. And as I look at that room that day, I see these people astounded and astonished and amazed. And it says they glorified God. And they said, we never saw anything like this. Man, I think as the church, as the men and women here, those of you in this room today that that know the hope of Christ, our mandate is to love the world. And when we do so, recognize that we're not the ones that get the glory. When people come and they encounter Jesus, whether we were the ones that carried them or not, the glory belongs to God. We may be persistent in our faith. May we be creative in our faith. We, may we be sacrificial in our faith so that the world around us might stand in amazement and glorify God, saying we've never seen anything like this. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the opportunity you give us every week, God, to, to encounter you and to just, just to gaze upon you, Jesus. And, and God, help us to understand that, that, that This amazing truth that you are available, God, that you are present, that Jesus, you have come, God, that we might have life. 
Jesus, you and you alone can forgive sins, and, and you've made a way for us to experience that amazing grace that only you can give. And so, God, my prayer today as a church, as we gather in this place, God, is that we would worship you as we gaze upon uh, this scene and as we see the character of God, the heart of God unfold on the pages of this story, God. May we be amazed. May you receive the glory. And God, I pray for those here that they maybe find themselves in a place where they have never uh, trusted you, they've never come to faith in you, they've never declared their need for you, they've never tasted the amazing grace that only you can offer. God, my prayer today is that by the power of your spirit, God, you'd open the eyes of those of us present who need you. God, help us recognize that you'll, you offer healing and forgiveness. God, give us that prayer of faith where we might say to you, God, I need you. I trust you. I believe, Jesus, you are who you said you are. I believe and trust that you, that you bore my sins and you went to the cross on my behalf. I believe, Jesus, that you have overcome sin and death and you offer forgiveness and new life. And today, I, I trust and believe in that. God, fill me with your presence. Make me the, the man or the woman you want me to be. God, I'm mindful of the church today, the, the men and women in this room that know you that have relationship with you, that have tasted this forgiveness. God, would you make us like these friends in this text who stop at nothing to share the hope of Jesus with the world around us, God. Mobilize us as a church, God, to be your hands, to be your feet, to sit in the ashes with those who sit in the ashes, to, to step into the mess of the world around us with the hope of Jesus. Not pointing people to ourselves, but pointing people to you. God, we thank you that you and you alone forgive. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.